Hello, listeners. I'm David Blakesley, and this is episode 124 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. We are going to talk about Ronald Meme's 1972 film, The Poseidon Adventure. This is a prototypical pillar in the uh, canon of American big-budget disaster movies, which was kind of a hot trend in the early 70s, and I'm sure we're going to talk all about the impact of this film, both uh, on its contemporary audience and the legacy it's created over the years. It's got a pretty fascinating cast, John Williams score. I mean, there's just any number of things to talk about here, and so we're going to get right into it. Uh, This is, by the way, a film that's playing just for the next three weeks or so as we record this on uh, August 10th as a recording date. Uh, It's going to be on the Criterion channel for just a few more weeks, and that's why I am breaking all kinds of rules (laughs) to get this uh, episode up and at you uh, as as quickly as we can. This is a film that was actually released in December of 1972, and in our timeline, we're still sort of in the June, early July period of that year. So I'm jumping ahead almost to the very last film in my spreadsheet that was released in this year of 1972. So kind of a holiday blockbuster, which went on to become the highest grossing film of 1973, I've got my own little nostalgic uh, connections to it. I saw it as a kid and probably haven't seen the whole thing ever since. But uh, it brought back some memories, and I'm really eager to hear uh, the insights of my two guests, which uh, you may have heard just recently on this podcast. So let's go ahead and introduce them. This time I'll start with Robert Taylor. Robert, welcome back. Hello. I am very happy to be here and talk about the ship that just can't go upright. (laughs) That's right. Well, it's great to have you back. And Richard Doyle, uh, welcome once again. Yeah, good to be here. Good good to talk about this one. Excellent. Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, uh, again, as uh, as I'm sitting here, it was just published yesterday. We recorded it over the weekend. Uh, Richard and Robert and also Daisuke Beppu got together to talk about a merchant ivory film called Savages. It was a really fun conversation about a film that I would say the majority of regular listeners to this podcast haven't seen or maybe don't even have access to. Uh, the Poseidon Adventure, on the other hand, has probably seen, been seen by a lot of folks, and so maybe that that's part of my reasons for bringing it up, is that this is a pretty accessible film. It's pretty familiar territory, and uh, again, gives us a lot to talk about, a lot to connect with. But I also just detected a certain note of enthusiasm uh, in Richard and Robert's uh, you know, notes to me saying, hey, they'd be interested in talking about this film when I added it to my spreadsheet not that long ago as the Criterion Channel added it to their lineup. And since it was a 72 film, I said, okay, it goes on the list. So as I've already said, I, I kind of bent the rules a little bit just so that we can get it up and at you while the film is still available on streaming there. And if you happen to miss it on the Criterion Channel, it's probably not that hard to find just about anywhere else, whether that's a cheap DVD, streaming on some other services, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I've babbled along enough here. And uh, again, this is a, a recording that we're doing just a, f- a few days after our savages. So I have not even really lived with this film other than, you know, my experience from decades ago, having seen it, you know, almost 50 years ago now. So anyways, let's go ahead and just get into the, ch- the chat because I want to hear kind of what is it that prompted Richard and Robert to shoot their hands up and say, me, 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 I want to be on this one. So Robert, I'll give you the first shot at it. What uh, was it that drew you to want to talk about the Poseidon Adventure well, with me? I think this movie actually had, in retrospect, a lot more impact on me as a young filmgoer than I expected. I, back when VHSs were still a thing, they, 20th Century Fox released this series of films in widescreen, and that was a big deal. Like, oh, these action and these sci-fi classics are available in widescreen, and they were all numbered on the side, so it encouraged you to get all of them. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, it had stuff like Alien, Aliens, um, and then two of them that I had never heard of because I was 12 or 13 at the time were The Poseidon Adventure and, and uh, The Towering Inferno. So I watched them. I loved uh, the actors who were older over the course of, in this film. And I think it was sort of a gateway into me checking out older cinema because they really impressed me here. So it was, I have not seen it in, gosh, I am 36 now, so um, 15, 18, 20 years or so. 
But just the thought of revisiting it, I was very excited to do so, and I'm happy I did. Spoiler alert, I thought it was glorious trash. <laughs> I think that those two uh, descriptors are applicable here. I won't disagree with your take on that, Robert. We'll get into that a little bit more, but let's hear from uh, Richard. Richard, what is it that stoked your interest in jumping on this one? Um, it is glorious trash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the uh, disaster movie genre, and this is one of the best films in it. It's sort of the one that set the template for how it played out after that, although airport came out first and was a huge success it's not a very typical not very typical of the genre while this one is sort of sets the formula in place and it's one of the better crafted ones it's Mm -hmm. you know it's got a very good cast it's got good special effects it won an academy award for the special effects It, it achieves everything it sets out to achieve and i've i've sort of seen it several times Mm -hmm. for that reason alone it also sort of represents, I think, sort of the the best of um, Hollywood mainstream entertainment in this era. That's very much my thought as well. This, this is a film that really is swinging for the masses. You know, it is it is trying to uh, please the crowd in ways that I don't think are necessarily degrading or or you know improper, whatever the word may be. It is very accessible mass entertainment. As you say, Richard, it achieves what it sets out to. It, it shows the audience a good time, uh, especially for its era, for 1972. It shows you sights that you really hadn't seen before on screen. Now, that may be a little bit of a, you know, uh, oversell for a younger a contemporary audience because kids uh, that were Robert's age when he first saw this or my age, I was uh, 11 when the film came out, probably saw it between the late ages 11 and 12, probably saw it sometime later in 1973. And, uh, you know, so, you know, even kids that age these days have seen a lot of visual eye-popping spectacles of all sorts. But this one has some charm. It's got those practical effects. Uh, you've got what looks to be pretty convincing recreation of a luxury liner that's been flipped upside down. And so there's a lot of uh, just interesting obstacles that the group has to get through in order to uh, make their way to the morning after. <laughs> so, all right. So let's let's just go ahead and, and talk a little bit about disaster movies because you're right. That that's the other thing. The, this film has a very strong um, sort of thumbprint that it's left on so many films afterwards. I, I would even say that you know the disaster genre is as bigger than ever now, even though it's diffused and spread out over so many different films. Uh, whereas in the early 70s, you know, the name Irwin Allen kind of got connected. I think he did both this one and The Towering Inferno, which was a 1974 production. You had Earthquake in there. I guess that's kind of like the, the holy trinity <laughs> of, of early 70s disaster flicks. But um, uh, Robert, it seems like you kind of got into the disaster movies as a kid. So tell me a little bit more about your, your infatuation with that genre and what is it that you get out of watching people surviving disasters and making their way through uh, what seemed like uh, do-or-die, life-or-death situations. Oh, indeed. And to echo something Richard said, we all have to, like, tip our hats to Airport, which came out in 1970. However, Mm -hmm. I think in retrospect, it's not really a disaster movie. I think that the sequels uh, are much more in the disaster subgenre. Um, Mm -hmm. the 77, I think it is, it crashes into the water and they're at the bottom of the ocean the entire time. That feels a lot more, you know, of this speed. So I would make the argument that Poseidon Adventures started this type of disaster movie. That's the beginning. And then when time ran out, which is another Irwin Allen movie that has a lot of returning crew from this, like Ryder Sterling's Elephant came back, several Red Buttons came back, Ernest Borgnine came back. That sort of represents the end. That movie costs, I think, $15 million and made something like $3 million. It was mm-hmm. it was an unmitigated disaster. And then in between, aside from the Irwin Allen ones, that some of them are good, like <clears throat> Towering Inferno is very fun, and then some of them are just asinine and terrible. We, uh, there's a sequel to this, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, that is just woof, bad. And he also did a movie called <laughs> The Swarm about killer bees coming for you, mm-hmm. which oh, yeah. actually feels like something that's happening today. Look up Japanese killer hornets, everyone. Um, sure. And then there were a ton of rebuffs. There was Meteor, there was Earthquake, movies like that. And, you know, 
I love them growing up. I love to put them on. <laughs> I thought that they were so much fun. And again, this was like a very young, like barely teenage Robert. The other thing that it sort of imprinted on me was how um, unfair life is. The, and this seems like a crazy thing to say, but in each one of these movies, there's always one or two deaths that is so unfair, and it just completely <laughs> yeah, comes out yeah. of nowhere. Ernest Borgnine's wife, spoiler alert, in this one, yeah. just she literally just falls off a ramp. And then in Towering Inferno, Jennifer Jones's last movie, the, our last image of the great Jennifer Jones is she just falls off a glass elevator and falls 72 stories to her death. Um, same thing in, you know, when time ran out, Pat Morita just falls off a bridge into some lava and stuff like that. When you're 12 or 13 years old, you're trying to be like, wait, no, they didn't get a big hero moment. Like Shelly Winters dies, but she gets like her giant, like, I had a reason to die. Whereas, you know, life isn't like that. Sorry to start on a dour note, but, <laughs> but like that truly traumatized me when I was younger, and I think that's part of the appeal of these things. <laughs> the, the, yeah, that kind of unpredictable rogue element where, yeah, the, the director is going to maybe play mean with you and, and with the audience's expectations. Yeah, who will live, who will die, it's all fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, at Earthquake, they kill off the two main characters in the last three minutes of the movie. Again, spoiler alert, sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, Richard, you, you, where, where do you come down with the, you know, the disaster genre as, as a form of entertainment, and where, where do you see this one fitting in as far as setting the pace and, and uh, setting a standard there? Yeah, I, I, I agree that this one is sort of the, like, it sets the template for them, like by having especially the, what this has that uh, air, airport certainly doesn't have is like the, the boss that is responsible for the, for the tragedy happening by being venal or, or greedy or doing mm-hmm. something which is reproduced in the towering inferno. And it sort of sets much of the pattern for these. Yeah. And uh, in general, I mean, this sort of sets the the grand hotel model of making disaster movies by having a, a like fleet of stars who are all together with their own little melodramatic plot lines centered around something, which is sort of a, a beautifully venerable Hollywood formula. You know, how do you make a spectacular movie? Get your set of stars, give them all a melodramatic plot line, give them all characters and put them around an event, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think you you create characters that the audiences can identify with. That, you in know, the good whoever ones. you are. Yeah, yeah, in the good ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I will also say this: this is maybe my dissonant note is that I, even though I enjoyed the film for its craft and for so many of the elements, I did not find these characters likable or relatable. I mean, uh, not even Gene <laughs> so Hackman. Well, okay. Well, Gene Hackman's interesting, yeah. and and I think we need just to, we just need to break down each of these. But before we start dw- drilling into some of the specifics, um, I, I do like to sort of take a look at this at the bigger picture here, because uh, as you said, Richard, this is a Hollywood film uh, you know, made with that that touch of prestige and quality to it. Uh, this is before it settled into sort of exploitation or knockoff territory. Uh, this was a prestige production that brought you know. Gene Hackman, who was at the absolute height of his of his fame and star power, he'd just come off the French Connection, uh, was a pretty huge you know draw just by himself, and so he you know rightfully had the the lead role. You got Ernest Borgnine and Shelley Winters; they had each won Academy Awards and were very accomplished, very capable actors. Uh, their roles here seem a bit schmaltzy and overblown, uh, but again, that's that was those are the tastes that they're playing to here, and so I I'm having to go through my own struggles because I I I will sometimes have to acknowledge I have a bit of a snobby elitist <laughs> aspect to myself where I I look down on on uh, entertainment that is that is too pedestrian or, or too common <laughs> and and this one kind of rubs some of my some of some of my nerves the wrong way because I grew up on so much of this stuff that I grew to be a little disdainful of it and I, I could see sort of the formula that each of these characters was sort of playing to and I sort of wanted to sort of consider myself above <laughs> above all that so little little true confessions there but uh, still you've got you know a great widescreen image cinematography production values special effects 
performers who who really did get into their roles. They they really you know ate it up and and gave you I think their best given the material. So those are the, some of the quasi mixed feelings. I don't know if you guys have any response to the attitude or whatever that I'm throwing out there, but that was just a, a little bit of a reaction from me. I think these things are formulas for a reason, and I kind of find this right. stuff to be sort of cinema comfort food for me that sure sure you know mm-hmm. I, I can see what they're going to do and if they do it well it's like well that was a jolly good time at the movies right <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. I, I i don't um i agree that if you come here looking for nuance you're not going to find it right right it, it depends what you're what you're what you're coming for and i think um a formula extremely well executed is sort of a thing of beauty because it's so often not extremely well executed <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or it's a pale imitation yeah. of. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Especially as a, as a screenwriter yourself, you you are there to connect with audiences, to, to create relatable characters or vivid, memorable characters. Maybe characters that you hate, but you're still going to put them out there for the audience to react to. Yeah, I mean, just going off of what Richard said, I think that this is a good example of them trying to you know, exploit the actors in a really, really good way. They're bad. There's stuff that's super clunky. Like, when Shelley Winters is like, oh, our grandson, who we ha- who is two years old and we've never seen before, and finally I'll get to see him, I'm like, don't you know you're in a Shelley Winters movie, Shelley Winters? Come on, you're going to be dead soon. We know, we know. Yeah, but then, yeah, like, yeah. and then there are other moments that also, like, really drag when um, Ernest Borgheim's wife, uh, Cella Stevens, uh, apparently he doesn't know what a suppository is, but he's also a detective for the New York Police Department, which actually might explain a lot of things when you think about it. But but then there are, like, glorious, beautifully written moments. I love the introduction of Red Buttons when he puts out mm-hmm. all of his pills and he's like, this is what this pill is and this is what that pill is. That's really good writing. It seems to me, and I am not... I have no idea what the writing was like here. I know that there are two credited writers. Both of them are, you know, iconic within within Hollywood. Wendell Mays and Sterling Sullivan. I would say that it's probably Sullivan came in at the very end to do a dialogue pass, and so the really good sections of dialogue are courtesy mm-hmm. of him. And then I'm not going to blame everything bad on Wendell Mays because God knows, you know, he wrote Anatomy of a Murder and um, In Harm's Way and a couple other fantastic movies, but I will just note that right after this he wrote Death Wish. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just yeah, going to yeah. say everything good in the script is Sterling Sillifant and everything bad is Wendell Mays. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I, I, I would concur with that. <laughs> But yeah, when the characters are well-drawn, as I think half of them are here, it's great. When they're not, it's it's rough. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I, the, the friction and the bickering between uh, Ernest Borgnine and, and Stella Stevens really I found pretty grating, I, you know. And, yeah. and I, but I think it was almost like I could see my grandparents chuckling at that, though, because it did remind me of some of their banter their kind of interactions of an older generation of course we got the fat jokes with Shelley Winters and I guess she's a sport she she kind of went with it there but again yeah there's there's definitely some cringy stuff and and isn't it interesting all the upshots that we got of Stella Stevens panties peeking out the young girls and their hot pants and stuff I mean this is again part of that whole crowd-pleasing entertainment bit there and then the little kid uh uh Robin was his name, and uh, I just have never taken to those types of characters, whether that's uh, Danny and the Partridge family or or Bobby and the Brady Bunch. It's just like uh, Oliver and Eight is enough. Just get me away from those people. I do not want anything to do with <laughs> he's got them. Some, he's got some serious Ron Howard energy. Yeah. <laughs> that's another great analogy there, yeah. I would say if the movie was made today, Stella Stevens would be the character that survives, and Borgman would have been the one who died. She'd be the, the kick-ass action chick, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, 100%. <laughs> the one that I thought was going to grate the shit out of me, and that I ended up enjoying, was Nancy Drew herself, Pamela Sue Martin. Oh, yeah. I, fa- uh-huh. I thought the fact that she was in love with Gene Hackman, I found it so <laughs> cute and charming. And then, spoiler alert, when he dies at the end, her reaction to it genuinely moved me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
But again, half the cast and then half of them that survived are like, really him? Yeah. It's a beautiful screenwriting maneuver that they work they work in the detail that nobody can climb the Christmas tree or anything in their skirts, but they can in high heels. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, there's Stella Stevens on that ladder with these like silver stacks. You know, like, you all have to take your pants off. Six but inches. You keep your shoes on. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you know, there's a, there's all the implausibilities, but I'm not certainly going to let that stand in my way. So so let's get into how how this project came to be. Obviously, Airport uh, did sort of create uh, a bit of a sensation. Uh, this was a novel that was written in 1969, the the Poseidon Adventure. I'm saying uh, that apparently was somewhat of a of a you know popular uh, novel. Um, I don't know if it was a huge runaway hit along the lines of like The Godfather or Jaws, where the book really preceded the film quite a bit. But apparently not. Um, yeah. So did anybody? Does anybody know like how did how did this kind of come together? Because obviously you've got to put up some serious money and have some pretty uh, strong technical chops to be able to pull off uh, a luxury liner, you know, upside down and, and make it look, you know, convincing. So so you got some background on this work? It's Irwin Allen, pretty much. Yeah. Tell us about Irwin Allen. Yeah, he was uh, had quite a bit of money from producing a lot of, like, a series of hit television shows, Lost in Space and Voyage Under the Sea. And he had brought the project to Avco Embassy, like, the, the production company behind other things like The Graduate. And they yeah they were work, they were going to do it, and they turned it, they eventually dropped the project. So he brought it to Fox and put up half the budget himself. Mm-hmm. But he just had this sense that this is what audiences were looking for. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously he he probably figured he would do well. But to say you've got the number one box office gross for the year 1973, of course, that's right between The Godfather and then you get The Exorcist and uh, Godfather 2 in 74. So, um, yeah, Poseidon Adventure kind of lands in a sweet spot where they can really dominate. But uh, I remember, I remember it was a big sensation, you know. I mean, I knew kids who'd seen it multiple times. I remember the Mad Magazine parody, the Poopside Down Adventure. I, I was thinking of that the whole time I was watching this because I still remember, I still remember jokes from it. Sure, sure. And and just you know the the. Uh, just the spectacle that it put up there. I think it was definitely Hollywood saying, what's something new that we can show people that they can't see on TV, which I think is also what accounts for a lot of the, you know, the, the cussing and sometimes the occasional uh, coarse humor, you know, the, you know, Jesus Christ and all this kind of stuff. It's like where there's, there's also this uh, attempt to sort of make a, a larger philosophical or, or even theological types of statements here, which is, uh, an interesting uh, play to kind of give this movie, which might otherwise seem as disposable, ephemeral sensation, uh, they want to give it a little bit of gravitas. I, I, did, what did you guys think about the, uh, the sort of the you know the uh, God helps those who help themselves and the the, the kind of the tensions between uh, Reverend was it Scott was his name. Um, and and the more traditional clergyman, as well as you know the the tensions that he got into with the purser and and his whole leadership and pep talk and rousing the flagging morale, all all that stuff. The the, the leader among men. I think that Richard is going to disagree with what I'm about to say, and I apologize, <laughs> Richard. Okay. I think Gene Hackman is a wonderful actor. His character annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> I would I would be one of the dead ones because I would not follow him. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's a pretty uh, defensible point because, yeah, he, he definitely is not the kind of personality that I gravitate to for, you know, sort of setting this, the, the, the role model <laughs> that, that I aspire to be. But I, I, I think he was put forward sincerely as, like, here's a guy who's telling it like it is and is ready to uh, you know, push people through when they feel like giving up. Yeah, I also I do have to give the producers and writers a lot of credit, though, for killing him off. Like, uh, well, it's a heroic martyr death. Yeah, yeah and it ironic. became more regular as the disaster movies went on, but the fact that they had the cojones to do this uh, yeah. right after French Connection, I think, is a big deal. <laughs> 
Yeah, give us your take on on Gene Hackman, his role, and and the the, the function that the the Reverend plays in this film, Richard. I think a lot of it has to do with there's a sort of soft timeliness to the film. You know what I, I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a lot of uh, like like in addition to him, there's Carol Lindley's character in the uh, mm-hmm. the the sort of light hippie rock band. Yep. So yep. I I think that's a lot of it. It's like playing to the rebelliousness of the time without playing too hard into it. You know, he's a priest and it's a it's a religious rebellion and he's sort of driving the film. I, I like yeah. I like Hackman a lot and I like him in this role. I'm not sure I, I think the character is wonderful, but um, mm-hmm. actually I'd say his sermon to the to the passengers I thought was actually kind of interesting. Because he's kind of the early one yeah. where he's kind of yeah before the disaster. Yeah, yeah. Because he's he's largely sort of a, a stereotype character, but there what he says sort of makes some sense, and you can kind of see why he has this point of view. Well, but, and he's very very much an unorthodox. I mean, yeah. he is a liberal clergyman who's run afoul of church authority and hierarchy, and he's he's not preaching a traditional you know gospel message about humility and suffering and service he's like set that aside you got to make your own way through this world so in, in some ways he sounds not exactly secular but it's a very kind of unorthodox kind of novel uh, liberal version of christianity that doesn't really focus on the supernatural elements at all it's just about pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do what the good book says in a very kind of generic way and he provides a very necessary plot motive in that he's the one who drives everyone forward yeah 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 and and then you know and and then those debates between him and the purser where the purser is getting irate because he's like don't follow him and the crowd is like <laughs> it's almost like we choose barabbas not jesus you know <laughs> crucify him <laughs> and uh and so yeah you know in some ways they're 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 swinging for the fences in terms of trying to heighten up the drama but it also feels a little trite and a little flimsy and a little unconvincing um but you know they're they're playing to the times. It also yeah. would have made no difference because the way they they all die, they wouldn't have had time to have gotten up to join him anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but again, you you've got that pretty incredible set piece. I mean, I, I do enjoy just that sequence of the of the ship when it turns over, uh, and you've got everybody sliding. I mean, obviously there's some camera tricks going on here. You can break the scene down and try to reconstruct how they did the different shots, but. And I think if the ship really flipped that quickly, it might not have been drawn out quite as much. There wouldn't have been as much time of people sliding across the floor. It would have been just this lurching, you know, cataclysm and probably a lot more people killed instantly from just uh, falling to their deaths as they crashed into the into what was the ceiling there. But uh, still, you know, again, pretty, pretty good uh, special effects, pretty gripping. And I'm sure, again, to audiences of that time, they had never really seen anything quite that bold or dramatic in terms of, you know, interior shipwreck scenarios. Yeah, I think that, like, 10-minute sequence from when Leslie Nielsen gets the phone call to go up to the the captain's box, I think that's masterful filmmaking. The way that mm-hmm. the editing cuts back and forth from the celebration to the wave to the captain getting more and more panicked and trying not to show it. Like, all of that, I when I was watching it, I was like, damn, young Robert had some good taste. And then the rest of the movie <laughs> happened. But, like, that sequence in particular, mm-hmm. I thought was just, ooh, 10 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Leslie Nielsen. Did any of you guys struggle to take him seriously as a character, given the subsequent career <laughs> that that he had with with Naked Gun and, and other stuff like that? I mean, it's like when I see the credits and Leslie Nielsen as the captain, I just I just chuckled. <laughs> you know, one hundred percent. I think this is pretty much why he's an airplane. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, but but you know, again, his role here was play it straight. He's the captain. He's the man in charge, and that was kind of Leslie Nielsen's persona as he was kind of coming up, and then he just inverted it and went on to bigger and better things. I just kept waiting for Robin to come over and him to be like, "Have you ever seen a man naked?" <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, some some kind of subversive wink to the camera. We never really quite got that. And then, of course, he uh, he gets taken out, and there's not really even a glorious going down with the ship. I mean, basically, he got called up to the, you know, the, to take the wheel, and uh, the whole the whole crew just kind of gets wiped out, other than the purser. And I guess the uh, you know, the waiter guy was at Acres. Is that his name? Um, and the doctor. You run into the doctor later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. So but but it, it it's an effective way of whittling this massive you know, uh, you know all the passengers on board and this potentially massive cast. Now you've got a pretty manageable crew with uh, you know kind of an appeal to to all the you know the audience members whether that's to see yourself or to enjoy looking at people that you find attractive um let's talk about the red buttons character robert i think you had appreciated kind of how he was introduced he's kind of like the the sensitive kind-hearted guy in the whole bunch you know the the softy of uh, of course there's the jack albertson the older man but uh yeah, you know, just very interesting to see how each of these actors who sort of established their own kind of their own aura, their own presentation and reputation, uh, the film kind of played to that, but then kind of led them along in different ways. Yeah, I thought Red Buttons was excellent in the movie. I before I started watching it again, of course, I read the Wikipedia page and it said Gene Wilder had originally been yeah. cast for him, but dropped uh, out, and I suspect that's why his character survives because it was supposed to be Gene Wilder. But hmm. I think that Buttons just is exceedingly charismatic throughout. And he's really, and I know that Hackman is the reverend, so he's the quote-unquote soul of it, but, like, the director, Ronald Neem, really takes care to have Buttons have really meaningful interactions with each one of the survivors, just small moments mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. he's helping them, which I thought was really, really, like, lovely a a great way to build a character is to watch how he helps other characters during times of stress and i thought that that was an excellent way to build uh the buttons character into someone very memorable he he had sort of sort of a sweetness and softness about him and i i wonder in a contemporary disaster action thriller type of movie would you have a character with that kind of I don't know. I don't want to say delicacy, like he's fragile, but he's he's just very compassionate, and he's not, you know, also flexing or you know playing up for big comedy laughs. He's a he's a just a very kind-hearted uh, character uh, who who, like you say, renders care and support to people in their times of need. You would, uh, but I suspect he would die. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> Yeah, he he he'd be the softy, one of the yeah. first to go, right? Like, even if you look at, like, the, the Roland Emmerich ones from the 90s, they did have characters like that. Jeff Goldblum's father in Independence Day, I'm thinking specifically of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I like this type of character quite a bit. It's just a shame that we are in an era when, you you know, it's you have to sort of take everything not as seriously. And I like that there are just good people sometimes in movies. What's wrong with that, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the big fallouts is, you know, the the romance between him and Carol Lindley would often happen by fiat, you know, because the script says so. But you you buy it in this because he's really a wonderful guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's a trauma yeah. survivor. I mean, they all are in their own way, but she seems especially shaken. You know, uh, her brother was in this you know, in the band. She she sees him die. Um, she went there on this lark, you know, yeah. uh, we'll play music for free. We'll wind up in Greece. It'll be awesome. And now it's just a complete, you know, frightening disaster. She can't swim. Uh, you know, she's, she's definitely, uh, a little bit, well, more than a little bit stuck, but she's, she's really stranded and, and doesn't know what to do with herself. And she needs somebody who can show her not only support and encouragement, but encourage her to believe in herself and to go ahead and do those impossible things that you have to do to, to make it through. Uh, what what do you know about Carol Lindley? I don't think she had a, a real strong career, but I mean, she, she was in TV for a while. I guess she was, you know, certainly cast for, for her looks and, and kind of, uh, you know, her, her beauty. She's kind of the blonde of the movie along with Pamela Sue Martin, the young brunette who I think was only 19 years old at the time. So, a little bit of an eye candy function and little bits of, um, I don't know, just kind of youth appeal, I suppose. I think that she is an excellent, excellent actress. I, one mm-hmm. of, 
uh, my favorite almost masterpiece movies is Bunny Lake is Missing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's yeah that's one I wanted to check out. Oh, she is incredible in that. And the movie fails in its third act, but it is has nothing to do with her performance. It's one of the best, like, tightly wound female performances. Ed Preminger just brings the best out in her. Is it like, is she in like a sort of a suspenseful type of role? Yeah, the premise of that movie is she drops her daughter off to, at a new school, and then when she comes to pick her up, the daughter, Bunny Lake, is gone. And so she calls Lawrence Olivier, he's a police officer, to come and check it out. They've just moved to the area. But we, Preminger is a genius because we never see the kid. We never see Bunny Lake, so we don't know if she's telling the truth or if it's totally bullshit. And oh, wow. Okay, so, so there's a head trip yeah. aspect to it. Yeah, so for the first 90 minutes of the, I think it's like 110-minute movie, you don't know who to side with. And then, oh, it's glorious. David, you'd love it. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I, I definitely, it's one that's caught my attention, just never quite got She was it. actually a fairly big star at the time that she made this. Like, like she she's kind of faded from the public view, but I mean, she was in movies like the Gene Harlow biopic, Harlow, playing Gene Harlow. and. Mm-hmm. And okay. in the Cardinal, so for out of premature, so she was kind of a big deal at the time, like not a not one of the major cast members, but she's right. not uh, she's not a nobody. And you saw her in Beware the Blob. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I remember seeing right? that. She made that movie right okay. before this one, right? Which was kind of yeah the the uh, the, the beach party. Who is the guy behind all yeah, of that? Yeah. Uh, um, it. Well, no, Larry, Larry Hagman, Hagman yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah, Larry. Nope. Well, it was it was Larry Hagman's beach beach neighborhood. He lived in Malibu. Got a bunch of his pals together. They made the Beware the Blob. That's what I was trying to think of the name Jack Harris actually. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, Jack Harris was yeah, the yeah. producer there for sure. So and yeah, we're we're talking about another Jack Harris coming up uh, down the road a piece there. But anyways, yeah, back so back to our uh, actors. We def- definitely went down the bunny trail. I, <laughs> I do have to say one other thing about Carol Lindley. Yeah. I think sure, she sure. is very good in this movie. That mm-hmm. song is awful, <laughs> and it won an oh, Oscar. Wow. Oh wow! Oh, okay, won no, an Robert. Oscar. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Robert. No, that that song is emblazoned on my heart. I love that song. I mean, so, I can I, see why yeah. because it's just <laughs> one lyric said three hundred times. <laughs> well, and it, but I mean the the the, the orchestra the, the the hit single version. Actually, I will say that this was a profound disappointment. With yes, me because I was expecting to hear the radio hit version by Maureen uh, McGovern. Was that her name? Yeah, Maureen McGovern, uh, at swelling over the end credits. And all it was was just more John Williams, you know, symphonic soundtrack music, which was fine. But it's like, where in the hell is the morning after? <laughs> because that was like, that's the emotional capstone. I mean, again, I grew up on that stuff. I love that 70s sunshine pop. And this just, yeah. I yeah. want to believe you. I want to, be- <laughs> I want to believe you that the other version is good. I like the one from the Towering Inferno much more than this. I do want to talk about John Williams, though, if that's okay. Okay, well, Ro- uh, Richard had a point. I was looking at oh, say, sorry, Richard. if you know the Marine McGovern version, that's not the version in this movie. No, it's yeah, not. Yeah, you yeah. don't hear it. The, the, okay, I will yeah. listen to it after, and David, you can just edit in at the very end, Robert was wrong, or Robert <laughs> oh, is standing by you, his you, opinion. You, you will be hearing the radio version of <laughs> yeah. The Morning After at the end <laughs> as the episode comes to a conclusion when okay. I finish the edits there uh, but we'll probably open with some of that John Williams soundtrack uh, did, yeah, did you want to say any more about Maureen McGovern or did you already get your point of that was pretty much it just that, that, that if people okay. know her version it's not the version in the movie it's a different it's a different yeah, singer yeah. lip syncing it, it's a pretty Lindley. weak uh, acoustic blah kind of version of that song yeah. so <laughs> yeah that was definitely uh, you know certainly had escaped my memories of the film and I was really disappointed that I didn't get that moment. But, uh, it's like when, uh, when I watched the, the, a taste of honey, the British film from the <laughs> early sixties, I'm expecting a taste of honey, the song to be, nope, it never made an appearance in the movie. They, they took the title and made the song afterwards, apparently. <laughs> Anyways, do we want to talk about the John Williams soundtrack? This is yet another entry of John Williams. Like this guy's career is probably the most canonical, uh, you know, as far as American, big budget entertainment is concerned uh, i'm not sure that there's an especially memorable all-time theme but just the fact that his name is attached to this and you know and and this movie does definitely use music to punctuate the emotions again sometimes 
you know, blatantly. Um, so again, you've got to sort of be on board with that kind of thing because it, otherwise it can rub you the wrong way. But do you guys have any reactions to, to the musical soundtrack? I think it's just okay, Williams. And this mm-hmm. isn't the John Williams we know. We yeah. all have to set that as, this was Williams before Star Wars. He did a ton of disaster movies. He did Towering Inferno as well. He did Earthquake as well. And all of these movies are fine. They have good sections of music in them. Certainly the main theme I like quite a bit, the one that plays over the main titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, the finale cue is pretty incredible. But the just the suspense stuff is pretty bland and, and not great. But Yeah, but, programmatic. Like, here's a big swell, something exciting or dramatic or yeah, horrible but, is about to happen. Yeah, But this was like the, the decade where Williams was not... The fact that he was doing these big budget movies, most of them were like smaller romances. He did Family Plot for Alfred Hitchcock. He mm-hmm. always used, I'm shocked he didn't do it here. He always fucking used harpsichord and it drives me crazy when I lis- listen to the old scores because it has <laughs> aged them so poorly. But yeah. I love the beginning. I love the end. The middle stuff, not up to par with what we know the maestro can accomplish at his best. He's kind of cranking it out at this point. He's in so many movies. But the fact that he did it all back in the early 70s, even late 60s, and was still doing it so many decades later, it's just, it is really quite a remarkable He's still doing it now. I cannot wait for his new one. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying saying this is it. So uh, what's what's the last one that he did, or is he doing? He's going to do Indiana Jones 5. And the Spielberg Spielberg biographical movie. And those are, he says, the last two he's going to do. Well, those are appropriate notes to go out on, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. I say if they offer him enough money, he'll come back. I mean, he did a theme for Obi Wan Kenobi for God's sake. Well, I'm sure he probably just picks and chooses stuff that he feels like working on. But uh, you know, he's definitely getting up there in some years too. Don't say that. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's just—it's not true of... if we don't say it out loud. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, who else? We oh, let's talk about Stella Stevens uh, again. Uh, more than cheesecake, she was a pretty brassy broad. Uh, I think she ended up doing two, uh, three uh, Playboy centerfolds or spreads over the years. She had a certain function in the film, uh, both as a foil uh, for Ernest Borgnine, uh, a woman that he could react to or about. <laughs> again, that some of that stuff didn't really set all that well with me, but uh, let's give Stella Stevens credit for what she did. Any thoughts or comments on, on her performance? I think she had a bad character, but did as well as she could do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fair. I, I'd say the same thing. I don't think this is a particularly sterling film for her, but I think it's because the character is not so hot. Yeah. And so when you think about these screenwriters, uh, you know, I think, if you really want to critique or challenge, they, they could have done something a little bit more interesting or maybe made some of the jokes not so quite on the nose or just so demeaning. I mean, I don't know. I, I that's the, 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 that, that couple has probably got me off on a little bit of the wrong foot when I started watching it. I was just a little bit like, oh, could they just tone it down a little bit here? This is really obnoxious. I... There were enough other good, cool, fun things going on that I was able to get past that. But when the focus kind of came on their back and forth, uh, that's probably the closest that the movie came to losing me altogether. But fortunately, they were just more of a subplot or a, a, a subunit of the larger effort. Yeah, I agree. I think the sex worker thing is just cringe. The fact, <laughs> yeah. like, it's just it, it's not great. It, it was daring in its day. It's it's one of the things they changed from the book. Like she's apparently an actress in the book. Yeah. Uh, well, there's also yeah. And uh, I was looking at the Wikipedia summary of the book. There's a a rape that happens to uh, the the the, yeah. the the older sister and then she ends up kind of falling for her rapist or sympathizing uh, with him it's like yeah until cringy. He, i'm until glad he that they abruptly killed <laughs> yeah right yeah. but it's like yeah but then i think the, the book supposedly ends with her kind of hoping she got pregnant so that the, oh she no give this guy a lick. it's terrible it i mean this, this is what paul gallico wrote 
and in his book in 69. But yeah, yeah, really bad uh, sexual politics there, to say the very least. I'm glad that they made a different decision when Mm -hmm. they put the screenplay together. I I read the same summary and ran into that and went, mm -hmm. oh, I I, I can see why they trimmed that out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a pretty harrowing thing to put an audience through, much less the, the actor who had to take on that role that that's not, that's beyond transgressive it's it's nasty and, and horrible i'm sorry i just woke up i fainted when you said that she falls in love with her rapist yep. sorry, that's 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm going with the wikipedia summary of the book but i i can understand having seen enough popular entertainment and read books from i mean that it's 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 a mentality that that still persists in, in some blighted pockets of our society but it was probably more prevalent back then uh for reasons i probably won't go into the whole (laughs) sociological analysis but again that that was a very interesting angle for me to consider that this was kind of a a a blockbuster crowd pleaser again going back to the highest gross uh, which meant a lot of repeat viewings a lot of word of mouth everybody felt like you got to go check this out and that's that's an interesting um thing to a quality to attribute to this film which in some ways may seem kind of marginal or niche entertainment it's kind of an, a genre exercise but again in the year 1973 this movie was as big as it got that's an interesting statement right there and i think again i still think it's a pretty darn good movie it's, yeah it's yeah there. exactly exactly but but you know so when you start looking at some of the values some of the uh you know, the mindsets, the stereotypes and cliches, uh, who is it appealing to? What is it connecting with? Uh, how, how and why did the audiences identify so positively with these characters that they said, yeah, let's, let's come back and, and make it happen. Well, let's go, let's come back and watch the movie again. Uh, let's tell our friends about it and all of that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Ronald Neem as yeah. well. Uh, when I first saw the that it had come back to the Criterion Channel, it's like, well, what's the angle here? Uh, the Criterion Channel has it as one of their Saturday matinees, which uh, I guess makes it a little bit more of a family-friendly entertainment. I, you know, for some families, some of the language might be a little bit strong. This is not exactly a kiddie movie, but um, you know, that's that's Criterion's kind of reason. But then you put a name like Ronald Neem, uh, who is represented in the Criterion Collection in a few different releases. I actually just watched Hopscotch last night oh, yeah. from 1980, just to kind of get back in touch with that film, because I'm thinking, how does this fit with? Uh, things like uh, The Horse's Mouth and uh, uh, Tunes of Glory, which I think are the two earlier Ronald Neem films. He worked with David Lean, kind of did some quirky British stuff in the 50s and 60s, and then suddenly winds up doing a huge blockbuster. Do you got any thoughts on that, Richard? Or how do you track with Neem's career, and how do you think he wound up in this particular situation? um, Well, one thing I've heard is that he actually replaced a fire director on this one. Okay. But he was mm-hmm. actually in sort of a bit of a commercial high for his career. Like the he had made the Prime of Machine Brody, which was very big mm-hmm. and gambit with Michael Caine and uh, Shirley MacLaine. And mm-hmm. um, he was coming off the musical Scrooge, which was not a big hit, but I think it's actually a pretty good movie. And it's a big it's a big scale movie. Yeah, I watched it a couple years Christmases ago just to check it out. And I thought it was was pretty entertaining. I think I think it was just kind of at that time when big flashy musicals were going yeah. out of style. Even though it's just 2 years after Oliver and and you know The Sound of Music before that, My Fair Lady, everything just kind of came crashing down in like 69, yeah. you know. And uh, that stuff just didn't sell anymore. But I I honestly think I think they hired him for this one because he made that one because he proved he could he could helm a big studio movie in this era right yeah so he, he was kind of a director for hire yeah. and and even even in the criterion discs uh and the special features is he's also interviewed on a number of supplements and he seems like a really good guy uh but he he's definitely not an auteur he's a guy who just knows how to make movies and uh i was i was impressed on that angle because Again, as a as a as a director, especially you know, you you can get sort of pigeonholed as to what kind of movies you can do, uh, but it, in some ways, perhaps the uh, the disaster genre was so fresh and so new that 
nobody had really been typecast as that type of a director. You know, you talked about Roland Emmerich earlier, Robert. You mentioned him, and there's there's others who've kind of made disaster movies their their calling card or their specialty. Uh, Neem was kind of a uh, you know very versatile talent. Uh, he could do you know obviously character driven dramas like the uh, the Alec Guinness roles I, I mentioned earlier, and then then handling Walter Matthau, Glenda Jackson, and uh, you know all these international locations. He said they never set foot in the studio making the movie Hopscotch, and that's that's a pretty impressive feat right there. Uh, he also made the Odessa file right after this yeah. one, so it seemed like he really did have a uh, a pretty solid run of it there. But then, Robert, I think it was a film you mentioned, Meteor. Yes. Uh, that was a Ronald Neem. <laughs> so tell us about Meteor. What happened there? Because that sort of seemed like one of the death knells, at least for a while, of, of that style of uh, disaster movie. Oh, it's just heinous. It's um, <laughs> it's uh, Sean Connery, and it's one, essentially, one special effect of this big boulder just slowly coming towards space, coming towards uh, Earth, and then little pieces. It's Arm. It's Armageddon, which I do not like, right. but worse. Well, Armageddon certainly had cutting edge special effects, and it had again those big, broad, vulgar characters. That all uh, I'm going to say is, yeah. you guys remember Beware the Blob? That looked good <laughs> in comparison to Meteor. Yeah. Uh, there is okay. a Roland Neem movie that I do want to compliment, though. Okay, sure. I really like his, he did a movie with Judy Garland. I think yeah. it was either her penultimate movie or her last her movie last. called I Could Go On Singing, which I think is just a lovely, charming, beautifully rendered, not a great movie, but a wonderful, you put it on when it's winter, you drink some hot cocoa, and it's just what you need. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that was Judy Garland's last uh, role on screen. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I think it's either it her penultimate one or her last. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. So that's again, again, another interesting uh, example of Neem's versatility there. But yeah, it's like a guy you just want to meet and ask questions. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's very down to earth, very accessible. Yeah, I watched Hopscotch with my wife, and I watched the little interviews afterwards. It's like. This is a guy who's kind of seen a lot of things happen in the movie industry, kind of came from, you know, pretty basic roots. He was uh, a crew and assistant director for a long time. In fact, he did quite a few uh, films as cinematographer, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, long career. I'll tell you the difference between Poseidon Adventure and Meteor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Poseidon Adventure is 20th Century Fox, Irwin Allen, and apparently... Erwin Allen is really the second unit director and did a lot of the action scenes. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he has a directing history too. Meteor is AIP and the Shaw Brothers producing, and there's no money in that movie. The Shaw Brothers, yeah. wow. Okay, yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah. Was that just a cash grab on the Shaw's part? I mean, I, I yeah. guess I just thought the Shaw's just did kung fu action uh, they were or martial arts movies yeah. starting in the mid-70s on they were trying western co-productions some with hammer some, this one and they they're actually the co-producers of blade runner oh really yes, i had no are. idea <laughs> that's really fascinating yeah. okay i'll have to i'll have to chase that angle down yeah there, they but, provided uh, completion I, funds for blade runner <laughs> okay well it was a pretty fraught production on yeah. its own terms but uh uh totally unforgettable film yeah. so but all right are there uh, yeah go ahead but meteor just there's no money there right it's yeah. it's like the end of the cycle 79 and yeah. and neem is stuck directing a movie where there's no money for effects there's it, there was no way it was going to succeed <laughs> yeah a, a little blemish on his resume but at this point he's you know he's already accomplished quite a few things probably got a a bit of a paycheck out of it, uh, and Hopscotch was actually his follow-up to Meteor, so that's a nice bounce back. Although, I, yeah, and I think Hopscotch did pretty well actually uh, for the type of movie it was. But yeah, so so the and, and again in '79, you know, you, now you are competing with uh, Star Wars and Close Encounters, and you know, there's some big money being thrown at big-time productions, and so yeah, Meteors sounds like it's pretty disposable drive-in movie trash or whatever. Um, any any other angles? Anything that we haven't touched on yet, or, or uh, recommendations? I mean, if you if you if you dig the Poseidon Adventure, where where do you go next for this era? Towering Inferno, not the remake. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's two remakes. It turns out. 
Yeah, there's one that was on NBC. And yeah. Just wait. I'm going to read the cast. Yeah, I was looking okay. at this. C. Thomas Howell, Sylvia Sims, Steve Gutenberg, Rutger Hauer, and Adam Baldwin. You're welcome. <laughs> its IMDb rate user rating is four. Wow. <laughs> Why? Yeah, that that that's a special accomplishment to get your average to come down to that yeah. low. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never had any interest in in revisiting. I mean, I think when I first heard that there was going to be a big budget remake, for a moment it flickered like, oh, that could be kind of cool. Like, nah, probably not. I don't really think that there's a, a need for for that. Um, and I I never bothered to watch either of them. Is there any redeeming value to the remakes? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, the remake, what, it broke Wolfgang Peterson. He didn't make yeah. a movie for a decade after that. Yeah. And and in, in some ways, I, I'm glad because I feel like that, that, that whole reliance on, on remaking familiar brands is just, it's indefensible. There's there's no need for it. You, you, you can do a, a disaster movie without having to call it Poseidon or saying this is a redo of the Poseidon Adventure. I mean, the Poseidon Adventure is good and, and great and, and adequate for what it is. And, and we don't need to see, I mean, the, the story, the concept itself is not so dynamic and brilliant that it's open to new interpretations, you know, or some kind of, you know, uh, cutting angle that hadn't been considered by, you know, by its creators the first time around. In fact, as we've already said, the, the novel source material seems somewhat reprehensible so <laughs> i'm not sure you really need to go back to that original story concept to uh you know to spin a good yarn i mean there's a scene in the remake richard have you seen it no i haven't i could not bring myself there's to. a scene there's a scene in the remake which is so racist where um they're crawling up it's the scene where um Roddy mcdowell dies in this one the, mm-hmm. they're going up the shaft and that's what she said. Um, but they're they're climbing up it, and um, Adam Rodriguez, who is a Latinx character, starts to fall and grabs onto. Um, I think it's Richard Dreyfuss's character, and the lead of the movie, Josh Lucas, just starts screaming, "Kick him off! Kick him oh, off!" No. And so Richard Dreyfuss, for no reason, he could have easily saved this guy, uh, starts beating him in the face with his foot, killing him. And even as I think the movie came out when I was 15 or 16, even then I was like, this does not feel good. Mm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I feel really grossed out by it. That said, Wolfgang Peterson, great director. Yeah. Don't watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you said it kind of derailed his career for a bit there as well. Yes. Um, but enough about racist blockbusters. <laughs> yeah, let's, talk, fine, yeah. let's talk about... Um, the Poseidon Adventure, which yeah. is only a little problematic. <laughs> well, what are you thinking of when you say only a little problematic? Is there anything? Oh, uh, we already we already, covered, already covered it. it. I, okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's all about uh, Ernest Borgnine's wife. But um, <laughs> anyway, what else would you like to talk about, David? You know, I'm not sure. I think I maybe I've hit the the main pieces here. Uh, is there anything more to be said about maybe Shelley Winters? Again, she, she's a pretty venerable actor uh, a pretty outstanding career um you know do you think that she well i don't know i'm not really sure what i have to say more about her but uh maybe just one name that wasn't sure if we'd given her adequate coverage or not she got the oscar nomination it's sort of like the murder on the orient express ingrid bergman nod she was there she was okay yeah Did she, so she she never actually won an no. oscar though is that correct yeah. She won the Golden Globe, I think, right? But not the Oscar. <laughs> and I guess, I guess that's the you know another area where I felt like the pathos was was just so kind of poured on like syrup, you know, just just a bit much there. Uh, but again, they they want to break through, they want to connect with you know probably a fair number of audience members who might identify positively or I you know in some ways relate to this older couple they're yearning to see a grandchild etc 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 so yeah, yeah. we've she's, all seen Shelley Winters die at least 15 times on screen I would say this ranks somewhere in like five to six what about you guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, Roddy McDowell. Any anything we want to say about Roddy? Uh, he was, I guess, he was sort of in between Planet of the Apes movies at this point. Maybe didn't realize how much Planet of the Apes was gonna. I don't know where were we at. Those were early seventies, but I think he had already done maybe one or two sequels. Is that correct? Two for sure. I don't. Two for sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to remember when the third one. I think the third one is the year after this. Yeah, the that was a conquest. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I guess he's probably taking work where he can find it. <laughs> he should have had a bigger role. I think he's a very, very good actor. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a shame that he dies so early. Yeah, but I think these that's the kind of the, again the formula here. You you've got a, a big cast and probably uh, depending on the size of their role, that's going to control their rate. And if he could get a quick appearance in for a decent paycheck uh, and uh, you know they don't have to go full on star treatment i'm sure hackman probably got the biggest you know slice out of out of this cast but i'm sure borgnine was not cheap probably all the way down probably to roddy mcdowell that there was you know some significant uh, negotiations to 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 deliver the check there and uh yeah it, again it's a pretty interesting uh you know kind of tracing the trajectory of how these actors, where they were, what got them to this point, and where they went afterwards. I concur. All right. Any, any other any other observations? I'll tell you the other Criterion connection for you. Sterling Siliphant was a close personal friend of Bruce Lee's. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, okay, that's interesting, because I, I listened to one of his uh, audiobook uh, biographies, and I'm trying to think of that name. I think I, I do now that you mention it recall hearing him mention from time to time go ahead he was a student of lee's partly because he was also friends with that's James right the, the, the whole kung fu craze the all these guys in, yeah. in la wanting to learn martial arts and here's the guy yeah. who who can give you private lessons and teach you some moves that you can't find anywhere else right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he he was writing a film that was just supposed to called the I'm trying to remember what it was called at the time, but he was writing a film that was going to co-star James Coburn and Bruce Lee mm. and be shot in India that, that everyone backed out mm. on. And that got made after Lee's death as Circle of Iron with David Carradine. Okay. So not necessarily a Bruce exploitation type of movie, but something. Okay. No, no. But but uh, sort of, well, it's kind of in that vein. It's like it was made in 78 and it's kind of, uh, you know, here's the script that, that didn't get made. Yeah. Okay, so it would have been Bruce Lee's next film yeah, or something yeah. along that line. I can see them yeah. kind of hyping that up. Well, that's a cool little trivia note to kind of maybe wrap up our conversation there. So uh, I won't ask you guys what you've been up to because we <laughs> just had that conversation over the weekend. But uh, I do appreciate you jumping on real short notice to give us a, give me a chance to throw another episode out there. Uh, not necessarily trying to bury that uh, Savages episode. So if, you, if you've listened to this one because you know the Poseidon Adventure... Uh, please listen to our talk, conversation about Savages. It may be a hard film to find, but it's a it's a great talk, and and even hearing uh, from Dice K is a real was a real wonderful experience, and I would hope that our listeners have a chance to enjoy uh, hearing his insights. He's just a great guy to listen to talking, and just a wonderful person all, to, all the way around. Um, oh, Robert, one other thing, too, I will say. I'm going to put up a YouTube video of stepping on a Spaniel. So, <laughs> I, I, Please do. I, it's so much better than there's got to be. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm, kidding. I'm not going to poke that bear anymore. Well, it's already up on my TikTok, but I will put it on my YouTube channel, which is a very small, modest little effort. Don't don't uh, don't think I'm hyping it up too much here. But, uh, yeah, I made a little... A little home video recording of that that uh, number so that uh, the internet can enjoy it like the rest of us did as well so okay this was so much fun i hope that they put towering inferno on as a matinee in the future i think it <laughs> i think it has a place in fact maybe maybe it uh, will be sooner than we think um yeah so the 50th anniversary of all these films in 1972 we're celebrating i guess uh, we'll see if there's a 50th anniversary reissue of uh, the poseidon adventure sometimes around the end of this year and also uh for listeners who did check out this previous episode of savages i did say at the end we're going to be talking about uh pasolini's the canterbury tales uh that really will be our next episode this one here was kind of a pop-up bonus they got thrown in on, on short notice so again breaking the rules and going a little bit out of order but uh it's all worth like it. gene hack so yeah, that's right. I'm a rebel. I'm cutting against orthodoxy there. I'm doing it my way. 
<laughs> all right, everybody. Well, I wish you all a good evening and even a happier morning after. Bye-bye. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night We have a chance to find the sunshine Let's keep on looking for the light Oh, can't you see the morning after It's waiting right outside the storm Why don't we cross the bridge together And find the place that's safe and warm It's not too late We should be giving Only with love can we climb It's not too late to be a more